one of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, and perhaps many of you have read that book. I think I've even mentioned it in a recent sermon the last couple of months. Um, it's a work of fiction in which C.S. Lewis is writing a series of letters uh, from Screwtape. Screwtape is a senior devil, and he is writing to his junior apprentice named Wormwood, and he is teaching him how to be a good devil for the master, or as he calls him, our father, who is the devil in the book, Satan himself. And reflecting on these letters, Lewis said the following. He said, I had never written anything more easily, and I never wrote anything with less enjoyment. A regular devotional that I read throughout the week is Table Talk, which is a magazine produced by Ligonier Ministries, and their devotionals for next month, when I got it in the mail this week, I saw it's called, it said, A Field Guide from the Abyss, A Training Manual for Demons. And so what's going on is, in the spirit of the screw tape letters, Table Talk has enlisted a series of writers to write new letters, and this month is a fictional manual for destroying the church. It's an instruction booklet for demons who need a crash course in basic strategy, and so they've compiled a list of 16 new letters, and I want to read you some of the topics that they cover. The letters include instructions on how to erode evangelism, how to cultivate cowardice, how to subvert the sacraments, how to wreck the word of God, how to wear down worship, how to push against holiness, how to demonize church discipline, how to make marriage miserable, how to fracture families, how to destroy doctrine, how to frustrate fellowship, how to obliterate offerings, how to pulverize the pastor's family, how to sabotage sanctification, how to diminish deacons and elders, how to attack assurance. If Satan has a strategy, and he does, brothers and sisters, then we must have one as well. And this passage presents us with a strategy, but you might be thinking, wait, I was listening carefully when Jason was reading and I heard nothing about Satan. Pastor Mark, are you sure? Yes, because we have to remember that though this is a military attack on the people of Israel, Satan is behind it. Now, how can you say that? Satan's not even mentioned in the passage. Well, let me, let me tell you. We must remember that this attack in Exodus, 18, or Exodus 17 has its roots well before Exodus 17. The Amalekites, the group of people that are attacking Israel in this passage, trace their lineage back to Esau. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, according to Genesis 36, 12, and the Israelites were descended from Jacob. And if you know anything about the story between Jacob and Esau, you know for sure that they did not like each other. In fact, Jacob represents the seed of promise, and Esau represents the seed of the serpent. Which goes even further back to another arrangement, namely Cain and Abel, with one representing, namely Abel, the seed of promise, and Cain, the seed of the serpent. And that goes back even further to Genesis 3, where we, are, where we read of this prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent 
and that there would be warfare. So this story is an illustration of that ongoing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, which is prophesied in Genesis 3.15. The battle in Exodus 17, then, is not some small conflict, some small tribal warfare going on in the Sinai Desert. Rather, it has its roots all the way back to the garden. It's a picture of spiritual battle that rages today between the people of God and the world, between the flesh and the devil. And this is the battle we need to focus on. The church today is not called to engage their enemy militarily. Side note, it wasn't wrong for Israel to engage militarily here. They didn't initiate the conflict. They were ambushed. But in this side of redemptive history, we no longer live in a nation state called Israel. Today, God's people are not a nation state. We are a worldwide body of believers in Jesus Christ called not to bear the sword like Peter attempted to do and Jesus told him to sheath it, but to lay our lives down and preach the gospel. Our true enemies aren't even physical anyway. Our true enemies are spiritual. We're called to love and pray for those who oppose us, not kill them. And our true enemies are spiritual beings in heavenly places that we cannot see, but nevertheless have great impact in our lives. And so therefore, we need to wage war against our true enemy, namely the spiritual forces that are opposed to Christ, his gospel, and his people. And so this morning, we're going to see five strategies from this passage against spiritual attack. Five strategies for spiritual attack. Here's number one. We are vulnerable to attack. We're vulnerable to attack. Let's read verse 8 of chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now this is a little bit of a new element in the story, right? So far, where have all the attacks come from? They have come from within the camp of Israel. They have been Israel attacking Moses for bringing them out into the desert and leading them, in, from their perspective, into the way of death. We saw it in Exodus 15. As the water was turned from bitter to sweet, we saw it in Exodus 16 as manna was provided to the people. We saw it last week in Exodus 7 as water was supplied from the rock. All the threats to Israel were internal threats. And this is important to note. Brothers and sisters, Though the church of Jesus Christ will have opposition from without, the greatest and chief and first obstacle is our own hearts. Our greatest problem is not out there. Our greatest problem is right here. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs aloud. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God. Our greatest is this. This thing residing within you is your greatest threat, your remaining sin. The biggest threat to the church in any generation is not the government. It's not some other religion. It's not the enemies of the faith. It's us. It's our own waywardness. It's our own wandering. It's our own hard-heartedness. It's our own love affair with our sin. But that's not to say that there's not external threats because there are. And we see those in Exodus 14 as the Egyptian army is pursuing the people of Israel after they've gotten out of bondage at the Passover. And they're walled in. 
They've got the desert on one end. They've got the Red Sea on another. There's no way they're getting out of this. And God parts the Red Sea and delivers them from that external threat. And here we have another example of an external threat in the Amalekites. And the Amalekites serve as the first post-Exodus external threat. Because remember, the Egyptians were an external threat during the initial days of the Exodus. Now, who were the Amalekites? Who are these people? Well, I already mentioned they were descendants of Esau. But they inhabited the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, according to Genesis 14 and Numbers 13. And they lived partly by attacking other population groups. And according to Judges 3, they plundered people pretty well. They liked to prey upon people and plunder their wealth. A year later, they would attack Israel again in Numbers 14. And ultimately, just so you know a little history of the Amalekites here, Ultimately, King Saul, the very first king of Israel, was supposed to put an end to them, and he did not do so. In 1 Samuel 15, 1-3, he spared the life of their king, and so it left Samuel and later David to finish the job, and even they didn't completely finish it. They were finally completely destroyed under the reign of Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4. But it took a long time to obey God's command to put the Amalekites away. And this teaches us something. Our enemy is particularly persistent too. Just as the Amalekites continuously and relentlessly preyed upon the people of Israel, so Satan is particularly persistent and all of his emissaries with the people of God and we must be prepared to engage in spiritual warfare as well. We are vulnerable to attack. Now, why did the Amalekites attack here? Well, let's read verse 8 again and you'll see that it's not mentioned. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Remember, Rephidim is the place that God instructed Moses to strike the rock and water flowed out. They're still in the same place, and they're ambushed by this northern tribe. We aren't told why they attacked. Perhaps it was because they felt threatened by Israel's sudden arrival in the territory. And while we aren't ultimately told why they are attacked, we are told elsewhere how they did it, how they attacked. When Moses looked back on this, he gives the reason. Would you hold your finger there in Exodus and turn to Deuteronomy 25? We're going to come right back to Exodus 17, but we're going to look at Deuteronomy 25 as Moses gives the reason for why, or the strategy, not the reason, but the strategy that the Amalekites uh, enjoined to attack the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. Moses says, remember what Amalek did to you? On the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Not only was the attack unprovoked by Israel, but it was targeted while they were weak. We see that throughout the wilderness journey, right? They're, they're weak. They're struggling. They're having a really hard time in the wilderness with food and water and getting their necessary supplies and hoping that they're going to survive and that God's going to provide for them. And they are struggling. But what, what's going on here is that the Amalekites are taking advantage of that. They are attacking and targeting the weak, those at the tail of the train. Notice he says they cut off the tail. That is, they went after the stragglers. They went after those who were at the back of the train, which would have been the weakest, 
the most helpless, the most indefensible, pregnant women, little children, perhaps large families. They were the defenseless. They were the ones that weren't equipped to fight. Rather, when they waged war, they didn't do it honorably. They didn't do it with a just cause. The Amalekites made a sneak attack. They did it while Israel was weak, and they did it against the weak and the helpless among them. Now, we learn something here. Satan doesn't fight fair. Satan doesn't fight fair. He's not interested in coming after you when you're sitting under a sermon. Although, he can do that too. He can fire your phone up. Get you on Facebook. But he'll, he, he doesn't fight fair. He fights, doesn't, he plays dirty. He'll do it when you're weak. He'll do it when you're weary. He'll attack you when you're at your most vulnerable. And you need to know that. You are vulnerable to attack. We have internal threats. We have our own sin. They're unbelievers within the church. And there are external threats. Spiritual warfare, cultural opposition. But we are particularly vulnerable, and we're especially particularly vulnerable when we're in a grumbling, weary state. And so we need to be aware of that. Don't think that that's an okay position to be in. When you're upset and frazzled and weary and tired, you need all the more to be on guard because you are then most vulnerable to attack. That's the first strategy. Recognizing that you're vulnerable. Number two, we are called to engage the enemy. We are called to engage the enemy. Look at verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose from us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, we might think based upon what God has been doing to the people of Israel so far that this is a really crazy idea. I mean, think about what has been going on since the Exodus has happened. Has Israel had to do anything? Not really. In Exodus 15, or Exodus 14, sorry, when, when they were at the Red Sea, God told them, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Don't do anything. I'm going to part the sea, you're going to walk across. Then when they get on the other side, they sing a song, and then, then they start to journey out into the wilderness, and they encounter the oasis that is not an oasis, as it's full of bitter water. And then, as a result, God just changes it for them through the miraculous working of a log that Moses cast in. They don't have to do anything. They just go drink. Then they come to Elim, and they just go drink again. Then they get out in the wilderness further into the desert of sin, and God, they don't have food, so God just starts providing it for them. And then they have to go out day by day and gather it, but they're not working for it. I mean, they're just having to go out, gather it, pull it in. And then they get into Exodus 17, and they're in the desert of Rephidim, and all of a sudden, they encounter an absence of water again. God tells them to strike the rock, and a, as we saw last week, gushed out a river that flooded through the desert and gave the people water to drink. So based on past provision, 
you would think as soon as the Amalekites attack here in Exodus 17, God's going to show up and say, listen, don't do anything. You see that pillar of cloud up above you? It's getting ready to get mighty active. You stand right there, and I'm going to bolt them. I'm just going to wipe them out with a lightning bolt, and it's going to be unbelievable. I mean, you're going to see, or I'm just going to split the earth right in two, and they're going to fall in. I mean, I'm going to do something powerful and miraculous. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. You might think that based on past provision, they wouldn't have to do anything, but that's, that's not the case. They engage militarily. They engage physically. God sent, or through Moses, Joshua, which is his first mention here in Exodus, to engage the Amalekites in a military fight. Now, we learn something here about spiritual warfare. We have a responsibility to engage. We can't sit passive and expect God to do everything. This, it's a consistent witness of the New Testament that we as Christians and that a core part of Christian discipleship requires gospel-driven effort. Holy Spirit-empowered for sure, but we will feel exertion, strain, and effort. Romans 8.13 tells us that by the Spirit, we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4 tells us to put off the old self and put on the new. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God and stand fast against the devil. Colossians 3 tells us to put to death what is earthly in us. 1 Timothy 6.12 tells us to fight the good fight of faith. Luke 13.24 tells us to strive to enter through the narrow gate. And that word is agonize. It's greatly emphasized in the New Testament that we must agonize, strain against the enemy. Now, some of us, I think, would say to Moses, wait a second, hold on. God's got plagues, right? I mean, he can do that, that whole plague thing again. I mean, Moses, you're kind of tight with God. Can't you go ask him to send some more plagues on these people? I mean, they're attacking us just like the Egyptians were. I mean, I don't know, we can tell them to make something, mix it up a little bit. I don't know, tell them to, I don't know, put frogs with spikes. Send them down. Some sort of fireball. Let's get plagues one, three, and seven and have blood shooting out of their eyes. Can we get that? Just call up one of those. I mean, aren't there spells or something that we can do here? You've seen Harry Potter. You just say something and it comes down. But that's not the way the Christian life works, friends. I'm going to fight for you, God says. The victory will be mine, but Joshua, get some soldiers ready. You have a day to do it, and you need to get out there and fight. This is, this is I hope that, that none of us have this idea of grace, that, 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 that you just think that grace means God does absolutely everything, and you just kind of let go and just let him do it for you. That is not biblical Christianity. That is a tool of Satan to keep you vulnerable. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. You know, God is at work within you to work out what he's working in. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Serve God in the strength that he supplies. Yes, he supplies the strength. But we have to serve him. We serve him in the strength. And serve him we must. 
1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what, is, what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I, but it was the grace of God that was with me. There's no, in Paul's mind, the grace of God and his effort, are, they go together. They're not two separate things. They work together in synergy. He says this again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, when he talks about his ministry, and he says that he is agonizing to bring people to maturity in Christ with the energy that God so powerfully works within him. But it's not like he's sitting around waiting for God to zap him with energy so he can go do it. No, as he's doing it, he's praying for God's energy to be perfected in him and, to, and, to, and for God to accomplish his work as he is working. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's not no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's like, wow, look, Paul's not even alive. It's just Christ living his life through him. Nevertheless, the life that I live, I live by faith. It's this weird, he says, I don't live any longer, but I live by faith. So which is it? Well, the old Paul that was separated from Christ and, and unfilled with the Holy Spirit and undesirous of pursuing Christ, that Paul's dead. But the life that he now lives, that he's been made alive to live, is by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for us. So it's very clear from this passage and all the New Testament, we are called to engage the enemy with all that we have. That's number two, second strategy. Number one, we're vulnerable. Number two, we are called to engage. Number three, we are dependent on God's power for victory. We are absolutely dependent on God's power for victory. Look at verse 11. We've already seen this a little bit. We saw Moses hit the hill as he sends Joshua down to fight. And you might think, Moses, you coward. Look at you. Send in the rookie. Send in the rookie. You don't want to do the battle yourself. You want to pass it off to Joshua. Well, keep in mind, Moses is in his 80s. And as we're going to see, he has a hard enough time holding that staff up as it is. I think he's dead in the first minute if he goes down there. He's not doing it because he's cowardly. He's doing it because God's power is essential. That's why he's doing it. As we see in this passage, he says he's going to the top of the hill, and in verse, verse 9, what does he say he's taking with him? The staff of God. He's going to take the staff of God, and he's going up to the top of the hill, and look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, now he's not just holding his hands up. He's got something in it. He's got a staff right here, and he's holding his hands up, and that staff is in it. And what's happening when that staff is held up? Israel wins. But when that staff starts to come down, starts to come down because of his weakness, he causes, as a result, Amalek to prevail. And so what's the deal? What's going on here? Well, he, this is Moses recognizing that he is absolutely, and Israel is absolutely, dependent on spiritual power, namely God's power, for victory. Spiritual intervention is necessary. Yes, physical exertion is necessary, but spiritual intervention is crucial. Moses went to the hillside to raise the staff, which, as we saw last week, is a symbol 
of God's power, of God's presence, of God's promises, of God's judgment. And the staff is an instrument by which the people and Moses recognize God's power and presence among them. This, again, it's not, we know it's not a magic stick. It's a stick that's symbolic of God's presence with his people. Remember, Israel was saved from a previous external threat, namely the Egyptians, through the instance of the staff. Turn back to Exodus 14. Let's see Moses' previous or Israel's previous military threat and what happened in verse 16 and 17 of Exodus 14. Lift up your staff, God says to Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So the previous external threat, namely the Egyptians, what did God tell Moses to do? Lift the staff up. Lift the staff up and I will defeat them. So he does the same thing here. This is a new external threat, the Amalekites. He's going to the hill. He's going to lift the staff up. Now this staff is lifted up against the Amalekites, and this seems to communicate that Moses is raising the staff in an act of divine judgment against the Amalekites, similar to the way he did it against the Egyptians in Exodus 14. What do we learn here? We learn here that it's not by physical force alone that our spiritual battles are won or lost. In our battles, both internally and externally, while God calls us to conduct ourselves in concrete obedience, walking out our actions in true faith, we must engage our sin, we must seek to have a pure church, we must engage in spiritual warfare, but we must do it not with carnal weapons, but spiritual ones. What did Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6 after he exhorted us to put on the full armor of God? And he said, take it all up doing what? Praying at all times in the Holy Spirit with all sorts of prayers and petitions. Why? Because it's God's power that must activate that armor to make it effective. Just because we put the armor on doesn't mean we're not going to get stabbed. No, the, pr the praying over, the holding up our hands and saying, God, this is out of my control. Satan is too powerful for me. My sin is too powerful for me. Save me, oh God. Save me. Keep me. Keep me. Keep me. We've got to be praying that and asking God to do that all the time. I mean, think of the vulnerabilities that we have in our marriages, in our church, in our family, in our work. We have to recognize that we are dependent on God's power. Now, while the text does not tell us that Moses was praying, I think it's safe to assume that we learn an important application regarding prayer. Now, you might ask, why doesn't it mention that he's praying? It doesn't say anything about him praying. Now, surely, we can surmise he's probably doing some praying while he's holding that staff up. God, keep your promises. God, keep your promises. God, show your judgment. God, show your power. No doubt. But I think the reason that prayer is not mentioned is because what's trying to be highlighted by Moses is the power of God. The power and presence of God is trying to be on highlight. Like, 
it's really, really crystal clear from verse 11 that the reason Israel is succeeding at all against the Amalekites is not because they're a well-trained army. They are a ragtag bunch of juveniles if there ever was one. I mean, this, these, are, these are easily defeated people. They're weary. They have no military experience. They're complainers. They, they, they can't stand up to any challenge whatsoever without great fear and retreat. This is not a great people. This is not a powerful army. And so the reason that Joshua leads these group of people and they defeat the Amalekites is because the staff is in here. Because God's power is at work in the people of Israel. And brothers and sisters, this shouldn't surprise us when we come to, to passages like 1 Timothy 2.8 that instruct us about the importance of prayer in the church that Paul says that the men should lift up holy hands in prayer without quarreling or disputing. Because lifted hands is a sign of prayerful dependence on God. Look at Psalm 141 with me for a second. Again, hold your finger in Exodus. We're coming right back. Psalm 141. And we see prayer again connected to the lifting of hands. Psalm 141. We'll start at verse 1, but the main, the main verse is 2. Psalm 141, verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. There we have the classic parallelism in the Psalms. The first part of verse 2 explains the second part. It says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands. So he, the psalmist couldn't even think of prayer apart from lifting hands. Does that mean we have to lift our hands every time we pray? No. It just means that prayer and the lifting of hands go together and they're an appropriate expression of one and the other. So raising hands is a sign of dependent prayer and surely we are dependent on God's power for victory through prayer as well. What happens when we don't pray? Well, what happens when the staff starts coming down? They start losing. They start losing. We start to lose the spiritual battle even if we have on the full armor of God when we don't pray. This is not only true of us individually, but it's also true of us as a church corporately. Brothers and sisters, if we don't gather for prayer, it's only a matter of time before our membership will be divided, our leaders will fall, our missionaries will come home because they are discouraged and they see no fruit. They will grow discouraged and possibly leave the field, and they will, the lost will not receive Christ. It is absolutely critical that we call on God in prayer. God is the difference between victory and, de and defeat, and your belief in that shows up in your prayer life. I mean, that's the most convicting thing I think I'm going to say this morning. Because I can go hours, days, without meaningful prayer. And when God chastises me for it, or sends a trial into my life to remind me, I'm broken, brothers and sisters, and I don't want to have to be that way. I don't want God to have to treat me like a mule, putting a bit in my mouth through trial to make me stay close to him. Let's embrace his way. Let's pray. Be praying. Be praying. Set a reminder on your phone if you need to, to remind you every two hours, pray, pray, pray. Just something. 
just calling out to God in 10 seconds as you transition throughout your day into the very next thing. Charles Spurgeon said a very memorable quote, can't get through, I seem like I can't get through a dang on sermon without quoting Spurgeon, but he's just so good. He says, I always consider it wise to put in a few moments of prayer before everything I do. So almost if we could train ourselves somehow where it's almost like as we make transition from one activity to the next or one appointment to the next or one moment of the day to the next, that somehow just in our spirit we get cued like, hey, time to pray. Let's, let's, let's talk to God. Let's talk to God about the next thing. Let's ask him to provide for us and protect us. And so it's so critical that we learn that discipline and may God help us to abide in a spirit of prayer in addition to our coming together to pray. Two more, quickly. Number four, we are weak and need each other in the fight. We are weak and need each other in the fight. Look at verse 12 and 13. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady, until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I love this. I, I just want to point this out quickly, because I, I think it's very important. Are you okay with people knowing your weaknesses? Really? Really? Because this is Moses writing his biography, and he includes stuff like this. Like there was times where I was weak and weary and I had people come and help me. That's a real, I don't, I'm not interested in Christian superhero biographies. Where this pastor, this man of God, just constant in his strength and never needed anybody. And everything he touched turned to gold. Not Christian. Christians are weak people. We are needy people. Don't pretend in here. Be gone with that spirit of Satan that walks around like you've got it all together. You don't. None of your pastors do. None of your deacons do. We need God. Every single moment of every single day. I'm done with Christianity in a year if God doesn't hold on to me. You have a broken pastor, a needy pastor. Thad is a needy pastor. Keith is a needy pastor. Keith is a needy pastor. We are needy men. And we know you wouldn't have it any other way. You want men that need God. And we need God. As much, if not more, than Moses needed him right here. Let us not be so proud as to admit our weakness. You have a pastor who's preaching to you right now who struggles with clinical depression. I'm not ashamed to admit that to you. I'm a needy man. Moses publicly displayed his weakness before the people of Israel, all so that it would become crystal clear that if Israel defeated the Amalekites, it wasn't because Moses was so strong. It was because God was so gracious. It was the glory of God, for the glory of God, that God calls weak leaders 
And brothers and sisters, it's not just a leadership thing. This is a church thing. This is why the church exists. We need each other. Just as Aaron and her helped Moses, so we need one another. When we grow weary, we need someone else to pray for us. I fear that some, perhaps in here, who could come to a prayer meeting don't because you feel too tired and you feel like you couldn't contribute. Is that a reason? No, because you're too tired. We're all too tired. We're all too tired. We should come because we're weary. You need the prayers of God's people to wash over you. Perhaps the key to regaining strength is not staying away from prayer, but having other people pray with and around you when you can't pray for yourself. We are weak. We need each other. And this, praise God, is why he's given us the family of the church. So that we can rally around each other. And, oh, we could talk the rest of this sermon. And I don't want you to be discouraged because there are so many evidences of that in our body. Literally, it keeps us so encouraged as pastors and deacons and other Christians that when we see each other caring for one another and bearing burdens and helping each other move through really difficult circumstances, we are weak, we need each other, we know it. Let's continue and abound in coming alongside each other and helping each other in the fight. Helping keep our arms up when they're falling down. Fifthly and finally, we are assured of victory in Jesus Christ. We are assured of victory in Jesus Christ. Notice what Moses comes along and says here at the end of Exodus 17 as he inserts this editorial reminder. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. Well, he did it. It's right here, right? It's in Exodus. He wrote it down and recited in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. He wanted the people to know that the Lord was the reason they won. The Lord was the reason they won. And so he, he, he says, make a memorial, make an altar, make sure it screams, the Lord is our banner. Not Moses, not Joshua. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. These are God's people. This is God's salvation. This is God's activity. God wanted his people to remember what he had done for them so that whenever they came under attack in the future, they would look to him for their salvation. A banner is a military standard, a piece of cloth bearing an army insignia and raised on a pole. Soldiers look to the banner to establish their identity. It helps them know who they are. It also helps them to keep their bearings on the battlefield and give them courage and hope to fight on. As long as the banner is flying, hope is not lost. And brothers and sisters, we have a great banner flying over the church. The Lord is our banner. We too are in a spiritual battle, but we gain our victory through another mediator. Not a weak, though faithful, old prophet named Moses who struggled to keep his hands up. No, we have a more powerful, greater Moses, another mediator who is our banner, and his name is Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 and verse 10. 
Here's Jesus in the Old Testament. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. That can also be translated banner. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah prophesies of a day where there's going to be a great banner. It's going to come from the root of Jesse, which is David's family. And there's going to be a true king that sits on the throne of the universe. And of him, not the people of Israel will inquire, the nations. The nations will want him. The nations will want this banner. He's going to be a banner over all peoples for all the nations. Every continent of the world that's inhabited. Maybe even the penguins of Antarctica. Who knows? Moses grew weary, but Jesus, brothers and sisters, never grows weary in his intercession. His hands are always lifted. Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for us. His hands aren't coming down. His arms never tire. Deuteronomy 33.27, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He's not having any trouble keeping you up. The sobering message of this story is that when people lift up their hands against God, like the Amalekites, God will lift up their, his hands against them. So if you're here this morning outside of Christ, don't be in opposition to God. If you lift up your hands against God, against his ways, against his people, against his truth, God will lift up his hands in judgment against you. But here's the good news. This story points us to our need for another man on another hill with hands lifted high. Unlike Moses' hands, which were spread out to give judgment, Jesus' hands were spread out to bring salvation to you. If you will turn from your sin and embrace him by faith. Jesus Christ is the banner for God's people who rally to him from every nation for salvation. Like Jesus said in John 12, 32. When I am lifted up from the earth and spread out my hands, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, which gives us again the wor the, a, a recalibration which is so necessary to the world in which we live. A world that is filled with devils and demons and that threaten to undo us. But we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. We thank you for the strong salvation that we have in our victorious, conquering King Jesus, who will not permit us to be sifted as wheat, who will pray for us and intercede for us and hold on to us so that we will not be cast away. But we will hold on and continue to follow you all by grace, all by your strong hands being lifted in intercession for us. Oh, that you would bring the nations under your banner, O oh God. Oh, that you would cause the nations to fear you. Help them to know that they are but men. Help them to know that outside of Christ there is no everlasting hope. There's only idolatry. Help them to find in Christ the Savior and lover of their souls who will never leave them, who will never forsake them, who will provide for them and shepherd them all of their days. Oh, lead the nations, O oh God, to encounter salvation under the banner of Jesus Christ. For we pray all this in the name of our glorious banner. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Amen.